Um, we're going to do something different this year. I, I've been praying for some time about what the Lord had in store for us with 2020. Of course, all kinds of really hokey uh, sayings came up, you know, see the world through 2020 kind of, you know what I mean? Um, uh, there will be no end of them this year. I'm an old marketing guy. Trust me, you're going to get worn out with 2020. Um, so, uh, and I thought about all of that, but I couldn't see one. So, I instead, I, I um, feel like as, as the staff join me in praying, I think we've come on a good thing for this year. And that is that this year we're going to have a year-long emphasis on outreach and evangelism. We're calling it our campaign but it's not a fundraising campaign. I mean, we may raise some money, sure. I mean, that's what churches do, right? I love taking money out of the tight-fisted grip of Christians for a good cause. I mean, it's, it's just a glorious experience uh, to free them from it. Um, no, seriously. Uh, but, uh, but seriously, in, uh, today's going to be kind of a, a state-of-the-church message. But, but it's setting up an emphasis for the whole year that we just want to see how God would lead each of us and as a body to do a better job telling the world around us about Jesus. Um, uh, can I confess something to you? Uh, some, I've done more ways, uh, more methods of evangelism than I can count. And some of them, when I've done them, I thought, if I were the other person, I would hate this. And, and I'm convinced that there's a golden rule of evangelism, that each of us is called to tell others about Jesus in the way that we would be comfortable in hearing it. And, and so, hear me, we're not going to force everybody to go knock on every door in the neighborhood. If you want to do that, that's great. We've done it. I've knocked on many of the doors around here. But, but we just want to together, over the course of the 12 months, pray together on how God would lead us in doing outreach. And the first step that Kevin and Lucas talked to you about is reading Questioning Evangelism together by Randy Newman. And I hope you're reading the book. If you don't have a copy, we have a few more. Um, and we've got Randy coming back first Sunday in February to speak. Um, I think his, his book is incredibly helpful. And then we'll have other things. And none of it will be scary, and none of it will be required, and no one's going to put a gun to your head, at least for that reason or anything else. It's, it's just, it's just going to be an emphasis. And I'm praying that as we, as we see God work over the course of 12 months, we'll see God work over the course of 12 months. Does that make sense? I'm really pumped about it. I really am excited about it. I think we've got a great plan developing, and, and I, hope, I hope you'll join us with it. And start by reading Question and Evangelism by Randy Newman. Not, no, not that one. Short people got no reason. That, not that one. Um, yesterday I, I was, I, I read a number of newspapers online or in print form, and one of them I read is, I, I peruse is the New York Times. Um, and, and yesterday it had an uh, op-ed article entitled, How Did Americans Lose Faith in Everything? How Did Americans Lose Faith in Everything? One of the trends in the American culture today is a distrust of almost every institution. Uh, and, and it's rampant in, in almost every area. There is an anti-institutional bias today that, that is reshaping everything about our society. And the writer, uh, uh, Mr. Levine, um, 
tries to address that in this article, and then, of course, he has a book that you can buy. Um, but let me read you a few paragraphs. When we think about our problems, we tend to imagine our society as a vast open space filled with individuals who are having trouble linking hands. And so we talk about breaking down walls and building bridges and leveling playing fields or casting unifying narratives. But what we are missing is not simply greater connectedness, but a structure of social life, a way to give shape, purpose, concrete meaning and identity to the things we do together. If American life is a big open space, it's not a space filled with individuals. It is a space filled with those structures of social life, with institutions. And if we are too often failing to foster belonging, legitimacy, and trust, what we are confronting is a failure of institutions. He goes on to say, we lose faith in an institution when we no longer believe that it plays this ethical or formative role of teaching the people within it to be trustworthy. Did you catch that? This can happen through simple corruption when an institution attempts to be formative, fail to overcome the vices of the people within it, as, and instead masks treachery as when a bank cheats its customers or a member of the clergy abuses a child. In other words, some of that lack of trust in our institutions come from the very well heard about cases where institutions broke faith and therefore were no longer trusted. Certainly has happened to the church, whether in uh, abuse of clergy sexually or financially or in a number of other ways, and that, that causes people to lose trust in those institutions, right? That kind of gross abuse of power obviously undermines public trust in institutions. It is common in our time as in every time. But for that very reason, it doesn't really explain the exceptional class collapse of trust in American institutions in recent de decades. In fact, as he, he discusses it, he's about the only institution that's highly trusted in America today, and his observation is the military. Um, and, and my conviction is the military is a special case because when it's life and death, you don't fool around near as much. Um, but uh, we have a distrust of government. We have a distrust of educational facilities. We have a distrust of business. We have a distrust of the church. We have a distrust of all of the professions. And, and each of us can explain that distrust in, in things that are going on. But then think of what that does to a society when that pervasive distrust affects how you view of everything around you. What does it do? You tend to isolate and get on the web. Finally, he says, what stands out about our era in particular is a distinct kind of institutional dereliction a failure even to attempt to form trustworthy people. We're not even trying to make trustworthy people. Instead, a tendency to think of institutions not as molds of character and behavior, but as platforms for performance and prominence. Our institutions, according to his opinion, have been places where the people involved in them, rather than using the institution to serve society around them by developing people of character and trust, have instead been used by people of power in those institutions simply for their own personal gain. And performance 
performance has become the standard rather than production of those things that society looks at. And I can't help but tell you, when I read that, I thought of what's going on in the evangelical church. Uh, a whole lot is being written all the time about how much the church has become performance-oriented. How, you know, the, if the music isn't just right, if the sermon's not just interesting, and I can't explain why you come with me, but anyway, work with me here. If, if, if the building isn't comfortable, if things aren't just right, then today in the body of Christ, it, there is not that commitment to the community. Instead, there is a, a question of performance. And way too many people in the church have used the church to sell their own books, to advance their own careers, rather than to serve the body of Christ. And there's nothing wrong with books. I read them. And when you're from East Texas, you brag about that. But I, I read books. I'm not condemning authors. I'm not con but it's when it takes the place, it replaces the place of serving, building trust and character, when it becomes simply a vehicle for personal aggrandizement, then society loses trust in it. And the author's suggesting that that's happened in all of our institutions. So when you read this and apply it to the church, one of the questions you have to ask is then what should the church do? What are we if we're not that? And so today I want to do a, a brief review, and this is a state of a church service. It, it's, not, it, it's not typical of what we do, but I, I want to take us through the five purposes of a church that you'll see on our website and our visitor's brochure and talk about how we do that at Grace because that will remind you who grace is, and what we're attempting to be. And, and if, you'll, if you want to look at a Bible passage, it's Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42. Uh, the book of Acts has summary statements. Uh, Dr. Luke loved to summarize. That's not atypical in, in Hebrew literature. And, and in this paragraph, he summarizes what happened when the church began at the day of Pentecost and what they gave themselves to. What were the activities that the early church begun to do, and it has historically been treated by the pastors and theologians as a summary of what God intends for the body of Christ to be and to do. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The first statement about what the body of Christ did when all of these disparate group of people came to faith through Peter's sermon the day of Pentecost and through the outreach of all of those Christians in the community, what was the first thing it talks about? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, one of the traits that we list is learning. Learning. Now, I'm from a Presbyterian background. In Presbyterian church, we always emphasize worship as primary. And I understand that. We're going to worship eternally in heaven, so the music's going to be really good there. That's what I'm thinking. Somehow it's going to make everybody happy. There's going to be organs and bass guitars. I don't know how it's going to work, but in heaven it's going to be good, right? Right? But notice that logically, in the beginning of the church, the beginning point is teaching of truth, the apostles' teaching. The reason for that is worship has to be rooted in truth and reality for it to be meaningful. There has to be content about who God is in order for worship to be meaningful. Now, we can have music that makes you feel a certain way, but you can get that at a rock concert, right? 
It becomes worship when the music, when the words, when the testimony directs us to the very truth of who God is. It is fundamental to the faith that it is about content and knowledge of truth. And this church has historically been all over this one. And we were started by seminary professors who were brilliant. And teaching of truth is fundamental to who we are. That's why we still have adult Bible classes. That's why in women's ministry we have people in the Word. It is, we are all over it because we believe it so strongly. And it has biblical precedent to start there. Um, when you visit other churches, you'll find that I, I met with a, a very prominent pastor now. He wasn't prominent when I knew him, but I've known him for years. And we ran into each other one day at a, at a program, and he said, you know, Andy, I, I don't teach to instruct anymore. I just teach to inspire. And I know what he means, because you, it is wrong to teach Scripture and not direct it to the heart. It's wrong to teach, lead a worship service that doesn't engage the emotions. But it's dangerous to engage the emotions without going through the truth in the mind. That's literally dangerous, and, and we're seeing it in more and more churches. There's a, a, a de-emphasis on the truth of Scripture and, and learning good theology, and so we are developing an American church that is staggeringly shallow and, uh, because it is the content that informs everything else. Uh, you have faith, but there has to be an object of that faith, correct? And so we are crazy here about the emphasis upon teaching the truth. That's why we have world-class adult Bible class leaders. That's why our women's ministry is crazy with the studying of Scripture. That's why I lead Bible study of men going to Scripture. That's why we emphasize reading the Scripture personally in the course of the week. Because if you don't know the truth, you don't have the foundation upon which to faith, have faith. And and. It is a crying need in the American church today, but it's, it's one that we feel very, very strongly about, um, and we always will. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. By the way, that's why we do exposition. Uh, we, we, I hesitated whether to say this, but what are you going to do, fire me? Um, maybe. The, when a sermon is solely emotions and inspiration, the power exists in the preacher because anybody who can manipulate other people emotionally has power. When a sermon, in addition to touching the heart, I'm not in any way saying we shouldn't do that, but when a sermon gives information, it gives power to the listener because knowledge gives power. Always distrust leaders who merely use emotion. Always distrust because, because power comes from persuasion that gives you the knowledge to evaluate yourself. And so we emphasize truth in the instruction of truth because that gives every person in the pew the right that's biblical to know God's truth and act based on it. And, and if all we do is manipulate you emotionally, then that enhances our power, but it gives you none. Does that make sense? 
It's part of what's so scary with what's going on in America today, not only in the church circles, but in political circles and everything else. We've become all about emotions. I mentioned uh, before I left the book uh, Coddling the American Mind. One of the untruths that the authors believe is being taught in the college campus is that emotions are truth. And that's incredibly dangerous. We have the privilege of the truth of God's Word that we must know and submit ourselves to. And that's fundamental who we are at Grace. Notice the second thing. Learn the truth. Secondly, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Koinonia is the Greek word. It's about relationships. Um, Some of us are individualistic. I'm an only child. I've always been an only child. I'll probably be an only child when I die. You know, it's just um, I'm fine in my own company, when Julie's there, it's a gathering, and I'm just happy as I can be. Um, but, but Scripture says, I need you. Because if I stay in my own head, I create my own reality. And, and Scripture says that relationally, we need other Christians. In fact, uh, research shows that most people come to their conclusions about what is true based on the people that they're around. Very few people are independent thinkers enough that they will hold positions counter to the people they live with all the time. And think about it. Six and a half days of the week, you're in the world. Six and a half days in the week, you're in the world. And the church asks for half a day to come and be reminded about it. Now, granted, you're in the Word at home, I, and you have Christian friends, I get all that. But, but you get why it's so important that fellowship with other believers so that you remind yourself that you're in a community that's committed to this truth. Years ago, a friend of mine said, I can't get my boys to be in the student ministry. I said, why? He said, well, you know, they, they have athletics and all, and they really don't want to come to church. I said, really? Do, do they want to go to the dentist? No. Do they want to go to school? No. Well, so they don't go to the dentist or school? How do you get by with that? He said, no, they have to go to the dentist or school. Those are important. <laughs> Work with me. Work with me. You know, I, I want them to want to. Sure, I want them to want to go to school too, but it's so important they're going to go, right? And when you don't expect them to, you tell them it's not important. You communicate to them. This isn't near as important as going to the doctor or going to the, you know, all of those things. This is just one more thing. It's kind of, you know, whether you're an Aggie or a Longhorn or whatever, you know. Well, that is life-changing, but a bad illustration. The, the, the reality is that, that Scripture makes fellowship with other believers unessential. You know, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We, we need people that criticize us besides our spouse and our mother, right? Um, we, we, need, we need the encouragement of other believers. And, and the early church was all over that. In fact, you, you'll see it and show up in multiple ways. They were committed to the breaking of bread and prayer. That was eating together because eating together is so powerful. It may also imply the Lord's table. Because in the first century, when they would come together in these group feasts, they called it the love feast, they would also often move into the Lord's Supper together. They didn't have an established church, and they would, and so the breaking of bread sometimes is used to imply that. But it's that, that fellowship around food that is so important. And, and uh, you see that heavy emphasis 
on, on community together. Because, because who we eat with shapes us. I, I have always been in men's groups. Always. Most of my life, at least two in the course of a week. And, and, and they're not, they don't always like me and I don't always like them. Right? That's the nature of being around people. But, but we need other people. We have ABC groups, uh, I mean, excuse me, uh, community groups. Next week, we'll have Community Link. It's a great opportunity to come sign up to be a part of a small group. You need that fellowship. Uh, Julie and I have been in a couple small group for a number of years. And finally, after a number of years, I think we're beginning to like each other. But the reality is we pray together, and we overcome those differences. And we've become important to each other, and it's a way that we express the love of Christ to each other. You can have fellowship through service groups. I've always said our choir in the first service is a great time of fellowship. They're, they're, a, they're almost a labor union. They pick at my office together. They, they have opinions about everything. I, I love the choir. They're great. They're, but they love on each other. A, you need to be a part of, of, a, of a community of believers. And it can be in our women's ministry. It can be in our couples' involvement. But you, we offer a number of ways to do it. But you got to do it, Right? Because we're not intended to do this alone, and they didn't in the first century. So they learned. They had fellowship. Um, verse 43, and everyone was filled with awe. I'm from Texas. That's A-W-E, not O-I-L. Um, um, what do you do? I'm in awe and gas. Uh, the... Um, worship is when we connect with the magnitude of who God is. And, and it, it, is, it is that connection with that which we can't, it's, it's the mystery of the faith. And we can do it privately. You know, uh, Lamont and Gay Oren, uh, Debbie Swindoll when he was, she was here, uh, my old friend Tim Musselwhite I brought back at different times talked about spiritual direction. There's a lovely body of literature about personal worship in your time alone with God incredibly powerful. Um, but corporate worship is also incredibly important. Coming together, it's, it's throughout Scripture. They did it together. I read the book of Nehemiah in preparing for this series, and um, one of the first things they did was they isolated music directors so they would come together and sing together. Interesting, isn't it? Um, and can I tell you, there will be a few pet peeves that will show up in this sermon. One of them is we sing with the lights on. I know a lot of churches, they're very dark because it's about, you know, getting alone with God. But corporate worship isn't about being alone with God. We need the awareness that we're part of a bigger community, that, that we're doing this with others. And, and you can be alone with God at home. But here, uh, being able to see other people is a part of it. We're... It's that reminder that we're a part of a body of believers. And, and Julie and I have talked about it. We've been attending here steadily since 1986. And one of the great joys is we, over that time, know so many stories of the body of believers here. So we look at people and we, we think of how God has worked in their lives, the marriages that God has restored, the people that God has healed. The, 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 we, we just are overcome with that sense. And the longer you're a part of a fellowship and the more you know the people, the more that corporate worship, the people you're with are a reminder of God's grace. It's incredibly powerful. 
And that's, that's why the music and worship gives a sense of awe and connectedness. Um, that's why we emphasize prayer in our worship service. Um, the Old Testament temple was called a house of prayer, and yet many worship services today don't hardly pray. I, I think it's incredibly important that there is a time set aside for self-directed prayer. Because I don't know all of the needs that you bring to this room, but you know your needs that you bring to the room. And you, you have to have that opportunity to, to cry out to God. And who of us doesn't? Um, so let me start over again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, learn, and to fellowship, having fellowship, breaking of the bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. By the way, I just read a book um, by a man who left Alice Seminary faculty and went into a different direction theologically. And I, I heard, surely it was a mistake, but he accused those of our ilk as not believing that God does miracles. He knows better than that. We believe desperately that God does miracles. We have a debate with some about whether God gives individuals a special power to do miracles. There's a big difference. We pray for miracles here all the time, and I have had people on this stage, well, on the old stage, for instance, who talked about God healing them from cancer, miraculous healings. We pray for miracles all the time. Don't let anyone tell you we don't believe in miracles, that we, we submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God. Sometimes He chooses not to answer our prayer the way we want, but we pray for God to act miraculously. We didn't believe that. Every woman in the church would be dismayed about her husband because all women are praying for God to do miracle in their husbands, right? That was a joke. Just seeing if you're with me. Okay. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone that had need, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Notice they continued to go to the temple to worship before the local churches were built. They broke bread in the homes and ate together. They served each other. Man, by the way, when, when you go eat, somebody work to make that happen. Many of us men don't realize that. We just think it kind of appears. You know, one of my favorite moments in staff meeting, we had a young guy in staff meeting one time. He said, you know, the great thing about Thanksgiving is it just happens. I, I thought Cindy Rawls was going to break his neck right there on the spot. I mean, we had to pull her fingers off of his little skinny neck and say, um, she's screaming, just happens. You know, uh, all of those things happen. What's the next statement? Because of serving. A church, the body of Christ is effective because there are people who serve. You know, I met with the elders and deacons twice this week. We talked about serving. We talk about it on the staff, serving. But that's just a small percentage of the people that serve here. Our women's ministry is unbelievable in serving in so many ways. Our elders and deacons, our ushers, our people that serve in children's ministry, the couples that volunteer in student ministry. A, a church works because people choose to serve. And some of you are thinking, oh, I guess I've got to do that. It's just it's my turn. But according to Scripture, you don't just serve out of a sense of duty. God uses service as part of the way He shapes us into who we are. We need the discipline of putting other needs before ourselves. 
That is a biblical discipline. That we need to learn what it is to consider other people's before needs and desires before our own. Whether it's a two-year-old in, in Sunday school or someone who's burying their spouse and needs help with their funeral. We, we need to learn what it is to serve, and that's part of how God shapes us to become his children. You see that here as well. Uh, this is my first Sunday back since Mason left staff. Um, uh, let me just say, Mason did a phenomenal job of serving, and we're all grateful for him. Uh, God moved him on to another place. He told you for the reasons because his, their plans for retirement, he's, he and Gail are still going to be here, which is a huge blessing. Last I heard, he was in the service, but he walked out. So maybe, you know, he's gone. I don't know. But um, he is a great example of someone who serves. And he served what we used to call shut-ins, the homebound. A lot of ladies and men at the stage in their life when no one cares about them anymore. That's the way they feel. And, and by his service there, he touched. I, I had someone walk up to me from the first service and say, your student ministries are amazing. They came and visited me. This weekend, Bash, this weekend, and some of our high school students came and visited one of the older people in the first service, and she all but had tears. They, we prayed together. It, it meant so much to me. And, and Mason and Andy Gutierrez and Candace have, have put that together because we need that service on both ends. But notice where it ends. Notice where the passage ends. By praising God and enjoying the favor of all people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. We're pretty good on the first four. We're not as good as we should be on that last one. We're not as good at evangelism as a body of believers as we should be. I've been here since 1986. I've been your pastor since 2002. Can I just say to you, we're not as good on that one as we should be. It's hard. And it's getting harder. But, but we're not as good on it as we should be. That's why this year is going to be about outreach. And we're going to teach the Word. We're going to, we're going to do all the things that we do. But we're going to every Sunday keep reminding each of us, that, whether it's to read uh, Randy Newman's book or uh, our other calls to action, that each of us take little steps in learning what it is to, to actively praise God in such a way that it attracts others to Him. Right? Uh, there's a lot of fear about evangelism, and, and I think we can overcome a lot of that if we as a community come together and say, let's do this together. You're thinking, oh, he wants to get numbers up in the church. No, it's, it's like all the rest of this stuff. We need it. God gives the increase. The name of the church is Ecclesia. And, and it means called out. It's God who calls unbelievers to his church using the human effort of believers. But it's God who ultimately calls people. But we need the joy of learning what it is to speak of our faith in God, to serve others in the community in a way that we demonstrate the love of God, to, to um, live out the gospel in such a way that we represent the Lord in the community. And I'm, I just think this is going to be a great year as we together 
learn how to do that. Because I don't know if you've ever had the joy of sitting with someone at the moment when they met Jesus. At, at that second when the love of Christ captured their hearts. You know, and, and, and that you've, you've seen the Spirit of God change their face. And it reminds you what you have. See, worship becomes more real when we're reminded of the power of the gospel by seeing the gospel work in the lives of other people. And I believe that God has called Grace Bible Church this year to an emphasis of seeing that happen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for the unbelievable men and women who have built it. Lord, we are humbled by the heritage that we have received. Thank you for this incredible community of believers that care for each other, pray for each other, serve each other, love each other, teach each other, work together with each other for the incredible impact that this community has had in the lives of others. But Father, I pray today that you would teach us in a new way what it is to live out your truth in the world around us. And as we read Randy Newman's book, as we change our ways of praying, as we study different ways we can talk, as we go through this process, Lord, I just ask that you would go before us and that we would see your grace work in making dead people alive. Because depopulating hell is the most important thing that we can do. In Jesus' name, amen.